Welcome to the Social Leader Podcast. This podcast is made for entrepreneurs, business owners, faith leaders, community advocates, volunteers, trailblazers, innovators, and visioneers from every walk of life. Social leaders are striving to move beyond charity and to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. These are folks that forge sustainable solutions to solve our community's most tangled problems. Social leaders are the most important and most creative leaders of our times because they are striving to lead with greater social impact and change our world. Welcome to episode number 18 of the Social Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Father Justin Matthews. And hey, real quick, before we begin today's episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit social venture in Kansas City working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation to reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about reconciliation services, programs, and even support our work by going to rs3101.org. Well, friends, I am very excited to welcome my guest, Myron McCant, to the podcast today. Myron is a social venture board member for Reconciliation Services. He is the co-owner of the Kitty Depot Learning Center in Kansas City and works with the Prospect Business Association. He is an entrepreneur, and I'm, I'm pleased to call him a really good friend. Myron, welcome to the Social Leader Podcast today. Father Justin, thank you, man. I'm so excited about what you're doing over here and uh, just honored that you have me as a guest today. Thank you very much. Oh, the honor and the pleasure is is mine and yours together because your time is really valuable and I really appreciate you making the time. I've I've rarely met many people who are involved with so many different things as you are, Myron. And I want to just launch in because I'm not sure that everybody listening knows you and I've had the pleasure of getting to know you over these last number of years that we've been working on creating jobs in the community through the RS Social Ventures Board. But I'd love for you to just share your story a little bit. How did you become the leader that you are today? Where did that begin? Tell us your story just a little bit. You know, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Father. It's a it's a very kind of complex uh, story. Um, I started out, uh, I'm from Excelsior Springs, Missouri. And uh, I grew up in a predominantly white community. As a matter of fact, I was the only black in my graduating class. Um, it has its pros and cons. This was back in the 70s and early 80s. Um, graduated from there, went off to college. Uh, college was not my priority. And so winded up uh, about after three years, went to college in Florida A&M after three years, uh, landed back in Excelsior Springs, um, went there at a company at that time called Whitaker Cable to take on a, um, a machinist job uh, working on the lower level. A um, couple months after that, they saw that I had some uh, vocational skills in architecture and uh, they moved me up to quality, um, quality control. And uh, instead of me being in the quality control office, I was uh, hanging out in the uh, uh, director's office. And for me, um, it was all about father. It was all about learning as much as I can. Uh, my mother, when her family or her friends and my mom and dad's friends would come over to the house for visitations or uh, the little social gatherings they would have. I was never out there playing with the kids. I was always in the adult um, segment. 
trying to find out what I could learn. And they used to run me away, but 10 minutes later, I'd find a reason to go back in there. So I say that to say, um, it's kind of been the pathway for my life. Um, it's the people that I have associated myself and which has got me um, to this next point. So hanging around the, um, the president's office, um, he was terminated. The company was bought out by another company. Uh, at the time it was Whitaker Cable. And we were bought out by another company. Um, it escapes my mind right now. Um, nonetheless, they saw potential in me um, to put me over the entire plant. So I become plant manager in about a two-year period. And so <clears throat> in that period of time, um, I was buying supplies, industrial supplies. I was buying all the raw materials from the manufacturing facility. And uh, there was a gentleman there that come there and said, hey, have you ever thought about being in sales? Hmm. I, I can't sell anything. And he says, I beg to differ. I want you to um, meet one of my friends. So I go over and I'm uh, uh, introduced to the president CEO of uh, a local printing and envelope manufacturer here called Casey Envelope. And uh, we come to find out that we had some very close uh um, some of the same friends and et cetera, he hired me on the spot. So now, um, again, I'm thrusted into an industry where I'm the only black in that industry. So I'm a salesperson for Casey envelope and I'm selling printing and, and envelopes for companies from McKeesport, Pennsylvania to Lodi, California. But one thing that, that I, it was kind of prevalent to me is everywhere I'd go, I noticed that I was the only black in the room. Um, again, that's the way I was raised. So we never saw color. Um, we experienced that color barrier, but my family welcomed everyone. And so from there, father, you know, I just, I just knew from there that God had a purpose for my life. Um, what that purpose was, I wasn't sure. Um, the next thing, you know, um, I embark upon, um, ministerial studies. So I went to HBI, um, uh, I was a part of Harvest Bible, uh, Harvest uh, Church up on quarantine under the leadership of Dr. Steve Haupt. And I wound up going through his ministerial training uh, course. It was a crash course two years, graduated from there. And so what I began to see was God was putting me in a position where I had to become a presenter. I had to speak before many people. And then he gave me some ministerial training. And so that kind of uh, shored things up for me. And so I contribute all of these things to um, the attributes I have today in terms of my um, uh, entrepreneurial spirit. Um, how I landed where I was in the midst of that, let me back up a little bit. Sure. Um, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, so when I would leave the printing business at four o'clock in the afternoon. I would immediately change clothes in my truck and I, I owned a small landscape company. And again, I was landscaping from 127th and Outlook to Smithville, Missouri. And uh, it, the business just grew organically. And I, I, it grew to the point where I had to call one of my best friends and say, hey, if you come help me with this, I'll give you 50% of the business. So we did that. Uh, we did that until the recession hit. Then we started buying uh, property. So in terms of fast forward, I've always had a, an eight to five job was never enough to me. 
That's what I'll tell you. Yeah, you've got a very driven mind. And you, I mean, if anybody that I know really embraces that entrepreneurial spirit, and by the way, I don't know why you at one point in time thought you couldn't sell. You're one of the most naturally gifted born salesmen I've ever met in my life. But yeah, I mean, you've, you've got quite a journey leading up to that. Yeah. And so, you know, um, it was, it, it was, when I look back now, it's, 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 it's rather amazing, but I think um, that's how life goes. Um, you can kind of look back and see how things unfolded. But if you start from the beginning, it, you know, God doesn't show us everything at the same time. I think it would be too overwhelming. But um, so a- as a result of this, um, I winded up going through a hardship in my life. Um, was married for 25 years, had two beautiful children by my first wife. And that thing kind of, uh, that dissolved. Um, things got bad. Um, I found myself in a very precarious situation. And um, um, the end, I mean, at the end of the day, wind up losing everything. Um, my wife and I had a very nice home out in Parkville, Missouri, um, 5,000 square feet, all the bells and whistles. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it was, it was just a great life. And it went from there to um, living in my brother's basement. So when I say I lost everything and was homeless, I was home. I was homeless in terms of owning my own residence. I'd, I'd resorted to living in a, a, a basement that I had finished for my brother. Mm. And so um, my son and I was there for a couple of years. And, you know, I, I just kind of really thought that was the end of the road for me. I thought that was the way it was going to be. And so I just, you know, I kept swimming upstream. I got my hammer and my saw back out and uh, began to do some rehab run across one of my old classmates that I played basketball with. He was my center, Art Ensley. And he asked me, he said, hey, uh, didn't you used to sell? And I said, yeah. He said, you ever thought about getting back into sales? And I said, sure. I said, at this point in time, Art, I'll do whatever's necessary. Right. And uh, Art gave me an opportunity to sell. And so um, I started selling for a local tire deer dealer here in town. And uh, I've since been with them for 10 years. <clears throat> in the midst of that, um, I met my wife, uh, Penny Dale McCant online, um, a site called blackpeoplemeet.com and met her and she was in the childcare business and, uh, she owned a home, a childcare based home. And so now I'm beginning to see where my entrepreneurial spirit, my business, uh, knowledge of business, how I could integrate this with what she was doing to create a bigger platform and to scale the opportunity. And um, I'm telling you, it's just, it, it's been phenomenal um, how it turned out. Um, we got our first location um, in which she had been trying to procure that location for five years. A guy wouldn't take her serious, wouldn't talk to her. Just so happened, I'd been knowing him since the eighties um, and met him here at, the, at this location. Uh, he was one of my dad's subcontractors. And, um, so he he gives he let me have the building. I mean, it was like overnight. We signed wow. the lease, and we uh, her and I uh, single handedly went in and renovated that three thousand square foot facility ourselves. Um, from there, we opened up. Jan, uh, that was January when we got the building. August two thousand and twelve, we opened that place up. Um, by December, uh, Father, the the facility was full. Wow. On the day shift, 
Yeah. Let, it, let's pause for a second before we jump into the growth of Kitty Depot and where you are now. Um, talk to me about um, the way that your upbringing, being one of the only kids of color in your neighborhood, and then again, when you're in sales, um, being one of the only uh, African-American men in that industry out doing sales, how did those experiences form your heart and give you um, the desire or the mission that you have now uh, in your current work? You know, it, it was pros and cons. Um, uh, the cons was uh, it was during an era where um, the racial divide is greater, much greater than it was today. Um, but again, we were people of love and culture and we didn't see color. So we embraced it because one, we didn't have a choice and two, we really didn't know any better. Um, the pros is it taught me how to um, set a stage for that place that I knew I would be eventually. And so um, that's that's kind of what it's done for me today. Today, I was on a podcast last night or I was in a live session last night and I was telling them, you know, um, it, it, the, the benefit of it was, uh, Father, was I just... It taught me how to navigate through all cultures. Of course, I knew how to navigate through mine, but it taught me how to navigate through other cultures. It taught me what the expectations were for the other cultures, although they didn't fit my culture. It didn't fit my narrative. It didn't fit who I was, but it allowed me to, it allowed me, it gave me a platform to navigate. And I was able to, I was able to take advantage of that. The day it's, it's a benefit still to this day. Now, I know recently you were on the Kansas City Chamber of Commerce uh, listening session where you um, shared your experience as an African-American man and business owner in Kansas City. Um, what was that like for you when you were talking to that audience of probably 600 or more uh, business leaders in Kansas City? What did you want them to hear from you and what was that experience like for you? It, it was a great experience. It was a humbling experience. I was honored again to be chosen. Uh, what I wanted them to know, uh, what I wanted them to learn was uh, awareness. Um, I think the reason that we have the stipulations and, and the setbacks today are because simply because people are, are not aware. And uh, that's what I was trying to bring to the table um, is to make everybody aware that there is a black world and there is a white world and the disadvantage for blacks is or the disadvantage for the whites is you only operate in the white world mm -hmm. and you have you don't have to operate in the black world. But as a people of color, we've got to exist in both worlds. And so um, with that and the things that I was able to bring to that um, conversation, I think it enlightened a lot of people. Um, the other thing that was uh, very, very uh, that I thought was very profound that I expressed was that um, the data um, to listen to collect information was only as good as the action or the or the um, action that was going to be put forth after that. Um, one of my one of my things that one of the things that I expressed to them was that. Um, all of this data, all this different mindset, all these things that we're exploring, it doesn't make any difference until blacks, people of color, have an opportunity or at the seat of the decision-making table. 
and that's when we uh, that's when we will see um, the greatest difference that we've ever seen in this country. Well, I want to follow up on that good point because I've been privileged to be able to walk with you as you were trying to grow the Kitty Depot a learning center platform. And I know that you ran into a number of challenges. And when we talked, it was possible uh, that some of those challenges had directly to do with that barrier of the white world and the black world, as you mm -hmm. put it. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit, educate us a little bit about what it was like as an entrepreneur and as a black man to try to get a project off the ground in Kansas City, um, to fund it, to get it going so that you could build this business. What were the barriers? How did you overcome them? And what work is still left to do in order to tear down those walls? Yeah, so the first thing I'll tell you is it was one of the greatest endeavors that I have ever taken on in my life. Um, it was it was tough. It was tough. Um, and the reason it was tough, so, so the structure of the business was there. Um, our business um, generated enough income to be able to make the debt service on the new development at a third of the capacity where we are today. The other uh, strength that I felt like the business had was we had, we had absolutely no debt. And so um, the challenge is, the challenge is and was the mentality of the powers that be for investing in an underserved community. Um, it was the mindset that why would we want to invest millions of dollars into a blighted and underserved community? And so that created that created a lot of um, that created a lot of barriers for me. The greatest barrier was the um, uh, when we we were ready to close the loan at the first lender. Mm. Um, they called me back. I was I was out of the country on a on a on a, a cruise, and they called me back to inform me that um, the appraisal had come back. And I said, wonderful. And they said, not so much. And I said, what's the problem? And I was informed that the appraisal come back $800,000 less than what it took to build the facility. Because you're trying to build on uh, the far east side of Kansas City on Prospect and further east where if you're not listening from Kansas City, um, that is a neighborhood that's struggled to survive and succeed for generations now because of economic disinvestment. Uh, racial discrimination and the other things that created that context. So you're saying that when somebody came in to try to appraise what would be built there, that appraiser didn't feel like that development would be worth as much there as it would be somewhere else. Absolutely. You know, um, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I've uh, advocated several times is it takes me the same. It costs me the same to lay a brick on 22nd and Prospect as it does in Johnson County. So mm -hmm. it, it costs the same. But when you have that type of uh, um, uh, an appraisal variance or, or a delta in your appraisal, um, it, it sets the project back. And so the question at that point in time, Father, was um, to the banker, well, what do we do? Right. And the response was um, you go and find an investor or you had to come up with $800,000. And mm -hmm. it was at that time I thought I thought it was over. I really thought it was over. Um, I was an awardee of the eight cent sales tax and CCED funds, which were taxes that were collected through um, Kansas City uh, that were designated to go for developments on the east side of the third district of Kansas City. So I was fortunate enough to um, be the recipient of one million dollars 
toward mm. our development. And I will tell you, without those types of incentives on the east side, there would be no development. Is that because of systemic racism specifically? Is that because of economic barriers, uh, because the fact that you're African-American? Or is it because the neighborhood is so um, dis disinvested that people don't think the investment there is is going to return a cash on cash return. What what in there is creating that context, Myron? You you've basically described a recipe. So it mm. is it is a portion of all of that. Um, we had some uh, we had some gentlemen, and I won't name the name of the company, but they come in from Overland Park. And Pastor, when you have uh, people that are not um, accustomed to or used to the landscape here in Central City. Uh, they come in, they've got to go through several barriers. They've got to go through some unpleasantries, some things that are not um, very uh, appealing to the eye. And they've got to come into a site and see, just kind of foresee this development. And then they've got to go back through those same barriers back to their office and develop an evaluation um, based on what they saw. So the the technical term for blight is escapes me. Um, um, let me come back to it. I'll get it in just a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a technical term that they use for blight. Mm -hmm. And um, it's at the tip of my tongue. Nonetheless, um, it was that blight. It was uh, external obsolescence. That's what the term, the, the technical term is called external obsolescence. And so when we, uh, when I looked that up, it, it describes the blight. And mm. so um, it it was a it, it was a detour, and so those... let's just pause there on that real quick. I want to focus on that word because I'm be honest with you. I think that is exactly what people think of. Not only of some of the areas in the urban core and central city, but actually, I think people think of the people. Some of the people that they think of, they think of as externally obsolete. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's very difficult to, to detangle external obsolescence mm -hmm. from the people who live there and the buildings that have been disinvested and, and the state of the neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that it remains obsolete. And mm -hmm. so how did you overcome that challenge and get funded? And where are you today now in that development, Myron? Um, what we did, I, you know, you have to, in, in this landscape, you have to develop relationships. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I got with my council person, uh, Miss Melissa Robinson. Um, Melissa was a point guard for me and she helped to direct me to some, uh, other, uh, incentive opportunities that I was not aware of, um, that were available to my, um, that were available to my development and, uh, what it did, it helped close the gap. And so uh, the bank was kind of in awe that because uh, I told them to stop right here. And let me back up. One of the things that the bank did on my behalf was instead of looking at it from an appraised value, they went and reevaluated our um, our books and looked at it from a net operating income. And so when they did that, they found instead of an eight hundred thousand dollar deficit, they they narrowed it down to three hundred thousand dollars. Right. So as a result of that, I was go back. I was able to go back to the city, 
and um, get some public improvement dollars for improvements in the public right away. Um, those improve those improvements that would be utilized for public, and uh, it closed the gap for me. And so that's how I was able to uh, overcome that barrier. Um, so today, how far are you now in the in the construction? Are you have you started the first bit of it, or where are you? What phase? We have we closed alone at the first of the year. Uh, the construction documents were submitted to the city. Um, we were in the design phase. So we got to the uh, construction documents. Those construction documents were submitted to the city on May the 8th. Um, this COVID has been a barrier for all of us. Yeah. And so the various departments that have to review um, codes and specifications and make, thing, make sure that things are done properly and in order, um, those people are operating from home. So what would normally take, you know, a, uh, a week or two to get your responses back has been uh, a little longer. But where we're at now, the loan has been closed. Um, we submitted our first um, set of documents May the 8th. We got resubmittals back um, about two weeks ago. We answered those submittals. And so we got a response back last week. And I think there were 12 the first time we're down to three. So hopefully the city will uh, grant us, uh, we're looking forward to uh, receiving our permits here just any day now. Well, congratulations. I mean, it, it's, it's a wonderful testament to that entrepreneurial spirit. But not only that, this work, this business has a real mission and a real purpose, and that's to deliver um, daycare services 24 hours a day to low-income families and, and this area that you're working in is in desperate need of uh, pathways for workforce development. But as most people listening know, unless you have things like adequate public transit, adequate education, adequate, adequate daycare, uh, you can throw money at workforce development all day long and people can't sustain the opportunities. Tell us a story about maybe one of those families, one of those parents that's been impacted by the work that you've done in your other Kitty Depot locations. And, and as you're doing that, I'm going to put up right now on the screen, your website, your Facebook page, uh, the Kitty Depot Learning Center at Facebook. And I'd encourage anybody who wants to share a comment about what we're talking about. If you're listening live, uh, feel free to do that. We'd love to bring you into the program today. But tell us a story, Myron, about one of those families that helps you to drive so hard towards this great work that you're doing. Yeah. You know, um, pastor, it's not only, it's not one family. It's, it's all the families. Um, as you've heard me say before, 70% of the patrons that we provide services to um, make $20,000 or less. And so when you have a mom uh, and we have uh, a couple, we, we call them the five pack, uh, a single mother with five children, uh, and she's out there making less than $20,000. You can imagine um, how tough that would be. You know, gas, lights, water, car payment, insurance, all the uh, uh, variables that it takes to uh, sustain some whatever quality of life she's able to. Um, our hearts, um, Father, are for the, the less unfortunate, uh, the, le uh, the unfortunate, um, the disinvested, um, those that don't really have an opportunity. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very, it's very heart wrenching. I, I think one of the greatest, um, despairs that I dealt with personally was during the time of this COVID when the city was shut down. Um, it bothered me so much. It bothered my wife so much. We, we chose to shut down 
not because we had to, but because of humanitarian reasons. Um, all money is not good money. And we just wanted to make sure that we didn't um, subject any of our staff, our parents, or the children to this virus. And so we elected to shut down, and uh, it was for that reason only. We have since reopened. We were shut down for 60 days. We have since reopened. And um, I mean, ever since we reopened, it's been gangbusters. But but to the point, I think one of the things that bothered us the most is to know that those children were not eating and those children were not getting wholesome meals. Um, we we serve a uh, no fried foods. We don't serve any pork, um, but it, it consists of a meat, a potato, a vegetable, a fruit milk and juice and those are some of the things that's required by the state and of course my mother is the head of the kitchen so i i describe <laughs> i describe our place as thanksgiving four days a week um fridays is usually a fun day so we'll have uh, pizza chicken nuggets and things like that but um to know that my babies were not getting a wholesome meal um it it, it was just it it, it was gut-wrenching what's and, the impact of your the healthy community that you're building, the healthy food, the 24 hour daycare. Um, talk about the impact and, and the advantages for that mom with four or five kids who is a single mom or a single dad and they're working hard to make their way forward. What would happen if you weren't there? How does your work transform that person's life and, and the community by extension? Sure. Sure, Pastor. It's it's uh it's not only it's not only to the parents, but it's to employers. Um, we have a holistic approach to our business model, and so that being, um, employers cannot hire people for those what we call the unorthodox work shifts. Um, they can't hire them if the people don't have a place to leave their children. Mm -hmm. Um, and the parents can't go to work if they don't have some place safe to leave to leave the children as well. So, um, it's a benefit. Um, uh, it's a benefit. It's a holistic benefit to the, to the overall community and the, and the ecosystem. So what we've been doing here as of late is going out and visiting with, um, vocations that have those second and third shifts to let them know that this is a service that we provide. Um, recently, uh, engaged with conversations with, uh, George Gates of Gates barbecue, um, um, had conversations with certainty. We provide services for employees of Ford Motor Company, General Motors, uh, the casinos, et cetera. Um, but, um, it, it, it's a holistic approach and it's, 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 it's a service that is needed by the parents and it's also needed by the employers. Um, I've got my hands on a lot of things right now, uh, particularly with this development, um, working a full-time job and then assisting my wife to run the business. But um, as time frees, uh, as time is freed up for me, uh, my goal is to go out there and um, what I, my, my goal is to, to go out with the employees and try to uh, show them the benefit of making this a part of their hiring package. And so that's that's what's uh, that's what's on our that's what we endeavor to do next. So real quickly before we move on, just I think people might be interested because we are still recording this podcast during the global pandemic. Safety is a big issue. The Kansas City Public Schools and other school systems aren't sure whether they're going to be starting late, if it's going to be all virtual. You know, a lot's going to be decided in the next couple of weeks. Um, 
what's going to happen to your business? And and if schools are closed, what's that going to mean for you? Are, are your services going to be even more essential? And then second, how are you keeping kids and staff and families safe from the coronavirus as you operate, Myron? Well, you know what? Um, the, 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 the matrix has been developed here in the last uh, 60 days, and we were concerned about uh, people not being able to go to work, but and uh, people losing their jobs and, and uh, the schools not being open. But what we found, Pastor, is because of our business model, we've got we have benefited from that. And so we don't really look to see uh, we don't look to see a down downside. We're, we're actually uh, putting ourselves in a position actually to scale up and be prepared for those additional um, uh, children that we'll provide services to. Well, I love your perspective in the way that you really um, turn towards what's possible. I think that's a hallmark of a great entrepreneur is, you know, when you see adversity, you see the seeds of possibility. And I can tell you, because here we serve over 5,000 very low income clients, many of sure. whom probably are also your families. Um, the need is increasing. I mean, there's been over a 200% increase in rent and utilities and some of our other client services. Um, there, people are really facing challenges right now as the unemployment benefits are starting to revert back to normal. Um, you know, some people were able to get PPP in order to keep their their employees going, but uh, we're facing a lot of challenge right now. And the fact that you're able to think and to pivot and to work with your your wife to keep open, I think, will make the difference for those who who can find employment. You know, I sense in your heart and in the way that you talk, Myron, a real, um, I'll call it like an attitude of abundance, mm -hmm. uh, that attitude of, of a positive approach. Where do you find and where do you see abundance in, in your life, Myron? Um, the peace that God has given me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, where, that's what it's all about. Um, so much gratitude and extending something that helps someone else. Um, um, and, and the peace that we get uh, as a result of that, that's 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 the abundance for me. Um, a lot of people would think that it's the uh, uh, the revenue that's generated or the, uh, the the monetary gain. But if if that were the case, Father, I would have taken this business model and moved it to the suburbs. Right. Where it would have been three or four times the opportunity. And we still have the opportunity to do that. But um, for us, it is the gratitude of providing a service and giving our little guys a hope and giving them uh, a place to come to where they are loved and they receive education and a good nutrition, which I think are the foundational principles of our business. And I think it's a foundation to um, the next level of their life. And so when these when these children come in our facility, they have a sense of hope because they can see something that's new. They see a different attitude. And I think it is the pivotal point in our country. I think it's, I think it's where it starts at, is with the little guys. What would you say to another entrepreneur who's listening, another leader who's really struggling? They're struggling to keep open. They're struggling to fight through this time or even you know, just starting a business. You've overcome so many obstacles, racial and environmental, economic, um, all of these things, what hope do you see and what word of encouragement would you give to an entrepreneur right now? Um, uh, the first thing is a, uh, a positive attitude. There's always hope. There's always an opportunity. 
Um, I've always lived by uh, the scripture that you seek wise counsel. Um, I'm not in the position that I'm in because that I'm this great business minor. I'm not, I'm this great entrepreneur, but it's simply because I have circled or surrounded myself with uh, people like yourself and people that are, um, that have an additional level of skills, uh, a greater amount of experience. And so we've, we've circled ourselves with people like that. Um, I've just been called to be the visionary. And I put the vision out there. Um, I've also put the, the performance to it to make sure the, bit, the, the vision is uh, sustainable. But um, what I would suggest to anyone that may be struggling is a seek wise counsel. And, um, you know, when we seek counsel, a lot of times we think that has a monetary benefit. But sometimes it's just it's being able to just have a good conversation. Um, I've always taught my children and, pe and people alike. If you want to go to another level, you have to hang out with those people at the level that you want to attain. And mm -hmm. so that all goes hand in hand with um, the people that I've surrounded myself with. I've got a phenomenal team um, uh, from my attorney um, to my accountant, to my broker, um, to my uh, program manager, um, to my architect and my general contractor and the relationships that I've built, uh, uh, my political relationships that I've built here in the city. I've just been able to surround myself with great people. And uh, when I'm faced with a challenge, I can always pick up the phone and uh, get a good, get good, solid uh, counsel. Well, and I love that you are choosing at first, at least as you expand this model to be that example for others in a very low income and struggling community, because not only is the service needed, but one of the things that I think we know empirically about isolation and concentrated poverty is you have a lot of social capital. In other words, people around you can really commiserate with the situation because all of you are struggling with similar institutional and personal barriers. But what's missing a lot of times in communities where there's significant poverty and trauma is that bridging capital. I don't have somebody that I can call on. I don't know somebody who can provide that wise counsel to help bridge me out of my situation and into the better uh, day tomorrow. And a lot of people, a lot of people take that for granted as a privilege. And I love that you've committed yourself, you and your wife, to providing that kind of bridging capital, that kind of relationship. And I'm excited to hear about families that not only get great services from the Kitty Depot Learning uh, Center, Learning Academy, but also who can use that as a springboard and a platform, can use you and your wife as those mentors as they start their journey. So I appreciate and, and thank the both of you for committing to that hard work and that opportunity. I want to ask you, I, I always end every single podcast with this question, and that is that if there are people who are listening today who are leaders that want to increase their social impact and learn how to have a greater um, purpose and mission from whatever leadership lane that they're in, what uh, advice would you give those who are trying to become social leaders? Are there two or three things that you want to share with them where they can learn to do that hard work of increasing their social impact? You know, I think it goes back to uh, uh, what I what I just said is you, you've you've got to get involved. Um, you've got to engage um, and you've got to engage with people that are going where you want to go. 
And um, there are there are a lot of people out here like myself, father. Um, there are there are a lot that that are doing. There's there's a lot of them out here in, in the uh, in the community that's actually uh, doing that exceed what I'm doing. But what I've learned is is building personal relationships. Um, you've got to get involved with your with your local leaders. You've got to get involved with your um, um, your your council people. Um, you've got to develop those relationships, and you certainly got to develop relationships with um, the people in the community. Hmm. Relationships, 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 and that within itself, um, I, we we've never spent a dime on marketing, but our name is all over the city, particularly in the third district. Mm. simply because of the relationships that we've built parents and it's just been by word of mouth. Um, now we're going to change that going into the new development. We'll, we'll spend some dollars on marketing and PR and et cetera. But I would tell you, it's just about building relationships, becoming exposed, um, uh, allowing people to know where you are, tell your story, tell your story, tell your story. Yeah. Thank you so much for the encouragement. Thank you for the great work that you do. And I think you just hit on something that if I can take us all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, you talked about those separate worlds, the, the white world and the black world and how that we just aren't aware. We don't know of each other. We don't think of each other as having different cultures. We actually don't know each other. And so that thing that you just hit on relationship as the key ingredient uh, to revealing strength. I think that that is the key in so many ways to breaking down those barriers that divide us. And right now in our country, we need racial and economic reconciliation. And we've got to start, I know you agree, we've got to start with getting to know one another and building authentic and um, deep relationships across those divides. So Myron, thank you for the work that you do at the Kitty Depot Learning Center. And I wanted to tell everyone again to go to your website. You can go to facebook.com forward slash the Kitty Depot Learning Center. Uh, go find out about the great work that Myron and his wife are doing there. Uh, Myron, thank you again so much. Thank you, Pastor. And if I could add one more thing, please. Please. Um, you know, in in this uh, in this. Um, in an attempt for the for the black community to bring themselves about out of the racial disparities, out of the underserved, out of the uh, in, underinvestment, I, I want my, I have to expound on the fact that this is not an effort to separate ourselves. And I really I, I really like to drive that home. It is not a it's not an opportunity. We do not see this as an opportunity to separate ourselves. It's just that the black community has to rise up. We have to empower ourselves so that the white community feels good and, and sees an opportunity to come over there and spend their dollars in our community. And so we have to create a place. Uh, we have to remove the blight. We've got to create some safe measures, some safe zones where they come into our community and see value in what we're doing and spend dollars in our community just like they do. But it has to start at home. And so um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for that to be taken out of context. And so I just want to I just wanted to clear the air on that. My business is a business that is reflective of our country. So we serve blacks, whites, Asians, Hispanics. We serve a little bit of everybody from our staff all the way down to the children and the families that we serve. So it's all about a collective uh, a collective opportunity that they would feel good uh, at coming into our community. We will never reach our full potential 
until they spend money in our community like we spend in theirs. Well, and I appreciate you bringing that out. I would also counterbalance that as a white man by saying to the white community that we have to do our work as well to actually lift up and to uh, drive our dollars into operationalizing our priorities. So that means that we need to really pursue sourcing uh, products or spending our discretionary money in places where we want to see change uh, because we can also open up our horizons and do our part and our work so that your business thrives and with the rest of the community that all ships can rise together. So Myron, I, I appreciate you bringing your time, your talent, your heart, uh, and that abundant perspective to today's conversation. So thanks so much. Hang with me for just a minute as we wrap up. And thanks I for, appreciate well, thanks so much for having. Thanks so much for having me, Pastor Father. Absolutely. Well, friends, we've reached the end of another episode of The Social Leader, and I have a favor to ask of you. If you like this podcast, wherever you follow us on YouTube or iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, go out there and smash that like button. If you're on YouTube, follow us, hit that little bell so that you'll know every time that we go live. And this is going to really help us share this show about increasing our social impact, about lifting up the work of great social leaders in our communities with a wider audience. And lastly, if you want to go deeper in your own social leadership, and if you want to have a greater social impact in your life and in your work, I want to tell you about a new resource that's really almost done. I've been talking about it for about a month or two now, and that's called the Social Leader Essentials eCourse. You can go to thesocialleader.org and find out more about that. You can even sign up, answer a few questions, and one of our team will reach out to you to see if this course is right for you. It is for everyone who wants to increase their social impact, operationalize and, and actualize their social priorities. And right now, we need everyone in every community to learn how to do that so that we can join Myron and all of the other social leaders out there to change our world and to bring these communities together. So until next time, again, thank you for joining me on the Social Leader Podcast. We look forward to seeing you next week on the next episode. <laughs>